HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to Dyed Green on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Kate McCabe. And I'm Max Sussman. Welcome back, everyone. So there's probably like, I would say, there's obviously a couple of things that people associate with Ireland, stereotypically, right? Obviously, one of them is potatoes. Another one of them is Guinness. And I would say, you know, coming in at a, in third place, or at least tied for top five, would probably be whiskey. And a lot of people go to Ireland to taste whiskey. It's obviously has an incredible history of whiskey and of distilling. And uh, we have learned in our travels that the word whiskey itself actually comes from an old Irish word, ishka, meaning water. Uh, water of life, I believe. Ishka Baha. And at some point, you know, the distilling traditions uh, kind of moved over to Scotland, which then became widely known around the world for their particular style of uh, Scotch whiskey. And the Irish Irish whiskey kind of fell off. We see this story repeated in different ways where something had a, a really strong legacy and historic tradition in Ireland and then started to disappear and only until recently came back. Like, the specifics of the history aren't important, but Ireland is known for its whiskey, obviously. not It's not just a stereotype. Well, I think the specifics of the history are important, but we're, we're going to talk about that a little bit on today's show. Exactly. Yeah. In recent history, we've seen uh, distilling in Ireland kind of explode again in the same way that, you know, say craft brewing has sort of exploded in the United States. Uh, there are now, you know, 30 or 40 distilleries making spirits in Ireland and that's a really really new thing it's a very exciting time to be talking about whiskey in Ireland and we have the perfect guest on our show today to really kind of bring out a lot of the details in the in that conversation we are speaking with 
Brendan Cardi, who is the founder of Killowen Distillery, which is Ireland's smallest distillery located in a village called Killowen, which is pretty close to Newry in the north of Ireland. We had the benefit of being able to visit Killowen to see just how small their operation is. What did you think? How small is it? It's very small. (laughs) It's very small, but they're really doing quite a lot and they're becoming a very large part of the whiskey story in Ireland right now and around the world. So we're really excited to have Brandon on the show. Um, we've got a lot of questions about whiskey. We've got a lot of questions about poutine. Uh, what, what are what are some other things we're going to be talking about with him? We're hopefully going to be demystifying a little bit of the distillation process. For example, what is single pot still whiskey and what isn't? Yeah, like there's technical questions that we want to know the answers to. And then there's like historical questions that I think he is going to be really good at answering. And then just in terms of like, what is so exciting about Cologne and what is, what is, yeah, what's so special about what they're doing? The fact that Cologne is really just a few years old and it is a very small distillery. And I'm wondering how does someone in Ireland get started yeah. in the industry? But I think Ireland is also synonymous with a couple of whiskey brands and they dominate the market really worldwide but especially here in the United States how do four people at a tiny distillery in such a remote area get started and a few years later already be making their mark on the industry yeah absolutely all right well this should be a really exciting conversation and also our very first beverage guest yeah on dyed green first of many regular listeners will know. Let's bring him on to the show. Thank you for coming on Dyed Green. Uh, you are actually the first distillers that we've had as guests on our podcast, so we're pretty excited about that. Brilliant. Thanks for having me on. It's wonderful. So you began your career as an architect, right? Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you, how you got started in that and what was the pivot like for you to go from architecture to distilling? Yeah, it's, I suppose it, it it, it wasn't very simple. It wasn't just, just a complete uh, switchover. Um, the idea of the distillery was always burning in the back of my head. And uh, I suppose we were out, in, myself and my wife uh, as well, were out uh, in Australia uh, during the, the recession. And um, a lot of people here moved away for, for work, more work opportunities. And uh, I remember tasting whiskey in Tasmania and, and, and thinking that it was wonderful. In fact, I thought it was just as good as the best of Irish whiskey that was 20 years older, for instance. Uh, so I went down and visited this guy's distillery and it had a massive influence on me as well. So that's Belgrove Distillery. But I was still planning on being an architect and I suppose I still am in a way. I still do a little bit here and there. But um, yeah, so I, upon coming home then, we just got stuck straight into the distillery and got it set up and got it built. And, uh, sorry about the Bobby crying in the background. It's just, no problem. No, I love it. It's charming. <laughs> I'm curious, how does one start? Or rather, what's the first step to opening a distillery once you decide that it's what you want to do? I would imagine it's not really like craft beer, for example, where you you just go out and buy all the supplies and start brewing in your basement. Or maybe it is. Maybe it is. Yeah, I don't know. In a way, in a way I suppose if you want to do it illicitly, that's what you do. And uh, go so far with that. But uh, it's just like in the States, it's very heavily regulated. When you make alcohol, you're making the country's money it's duty it's tax 
So there's a, a huge amount of approvals you have to go through. And then in order for those approvals to be considered, there needs to be planning permission and building control, for instance, So, and a business plan. So uh, I suppose it's a DRS, you guys call it over there. Yeah, well, over here it's HMRC. So the the same same party basically. They they look at your your business plan, but they also need to see your got approvals for building, the, your statutory approvals, your planning permission, and your building control. And then, so that's a big investment in itself. And then you come to the table with them and, and you show that you've got all of your everything is in order. And then from that, then they consider you and they meet you in person and they basically grill you to make sure that you know what you're doing, that you're competent, and that you're not going to be breaking the law. And uh, yeah, then they give you your approvals and there's a range of different approvals you have to get. Distilling, rectification, storage, uh, distribution, um, selling, those sorts of things, they all they all need their own license. So if, if they see you coming and you, one of your applications is out of order, it doesn't look, look good on you, you know? So yeah, it's very, it's very litigious and it's very admin heavy. Tell us a little bit about the location of Killowen. It's in the Morn Mountains, pretty close to Newry. Are you from from the area, or why did you choose that particular place for a location? Yes, yeah, so I live 15 minutes away, which I suppose in um, the rest of the world that means nothing. But if you live in rural Ireland or in regional Ireland, 15 minutes would mean traveling across two parishes. Uh, it's a hyper-regional place, so <laughs> there's a real sense of identity uh, everywhere you go, which is it's, it's part of the uniqueness of this place. And uh, so I suppose up on that mountain, I'd be considered an outsider, even though I'm from 15 minutes down the road. <laughs> but uh, it, it is all at the same time. It's all part of the same place. I'm from the Morn Mountains, uh, basically. Yeah, so this is our area. Uh, I'm from Morn Point, which is the next town over from Restriver, basically, that, that we're in. Although we're up quite high up in the mountains, it's a beautiful location and it's perfect for Asian whiskey. It's this highland maritime environment. Uh, it's a very small distillery. Uh, every inch is a prisoner, basically. For us, we, we really need to make use of our space. And we're overlooking the RC and we've got this fluctuating temperatures, fluctuating uh, fluctuations in air, ta- in air pressure. And then we've got um, our humidity is fluctuating all the time as well. So this really lends itself to uh, the aging of the whiskey. You know, the casket, um, the spirit moving in and out of the wood. And um, also it, it, it lends itself very well to other things that you might want to go into more detail on, I'm not sure, but it's like the fermentations, for instance, and all that really geeky stuff that we love to get in, involved with. So it's it's a very rural area, you know, and we, we see ourselves as being one with the environment. Uh, the water comes from the immediate locality in the mountains and then the feed goes back into the, the you know, the local sheep and cows who graze outdoors all year round and stuff. So it's there's very little, little waste as a result. We definitely want to talk a, a lot more about that, about the process of distilling and the particular terroir that you work with. But we wanted to jump back a little bit and ask about your process of learning to distill from the first steps of becoming interested in it. Obviously, there's quite a lot of technical um, learning that goes into it. So where did you get all that knowledge? What's your distilling background to the point where you felt like you're like, all right, I'm ready to do this. I'm ready to, we're ready to go out on our own. And and we know what, you know, we know what we want to do. We know what we want. Yeah, I suppose you, you pick up certain tricks along the way. And um, you're not allowed to distill illegally at home. And you're not allowed to, you know, pick up tricks that way. Um, even if there would be some people might have a lineage of distilling and you know in families or else you, some people might be potching makers so 
um, you're not allowed to learn from those methods. So the methods in which I learned, um, apart from the methods I already knew, were um, from uh, well, Peter at Bellagrove Distillery, for instance. I also done a diploma in, in distilling uh, myself. And I I done a little course as well in Strathairn Distillery in Scotland, which is a small distillery the same size as ours. And uh, spent some time there, stayed over there. And yeah, worked the process from start to finish and just took really good notes. And, and then from that, uh, I didn't want to be part of the industry. I didn't want to do what the rest of the industry does. And uh, I suppose we've got a law in our distillery that if somebody wants to come and work for our distillery, they're not allowed to, ha- to have any other previous distillery experience because we don't want people to be polluted with uh, other distilleries' ideas. And that homogenized approach that seems to be out there, uh, at Cologne, we consider to do things in an unorthodox manner. And that's all part of the, the way, that's, all, that's why our spirit tastes so good, you know? <laughs> That's actually a really good segue to the question that I wanted to ask you next. Um, I believe that you opened the distillery in 2017. Is that right? Well, yes, that's right. So even though it's only been about five years or so since then, it seems like you've all done a really great job of capturing the hearts and minds and enthusiasm of the spirits world. It seems like it would be particularly difficult to do something like that in these times because craft distilleries are popping up all over the place. So I'm just wondering, you just spoke to it a little bit, but why do you think it is that Kilowen is so special? And what do you think it is that makes it stand stand out? Like, what are you doing differently? That, that's that's a good point. Let's think. Uh, well, you're right. And it was a little bit shorter than that again. We've only been up and running. It took us a bit of time to get set up. So we've only been distilling now for about three and a half years, coming up four years. So in reality... I think we are the, the whiskey drinking public. Cologne Distillery, myself, Liam Brogan, Shane McCarthy, the three of us, we were part of whiskey clubs. We know what whiskey drinkers like to drink. Um, we're not we're not just in it for the money. Most of the distilleries that are opening up that we see anyway are people just saying, oh, do you know what? I, it's a vanity project. Either it's some extremely wealthy person wants to slam a load of money in it, or else it's just some guy who's got a big estate and he wants to, you know, uh, diversify the income. Um, there's a lot of estates still over here, by the way, um, <laughs> in lineage. And uh, so, th- and then, but then some people are genuinely interested in it too. But for us, we, we find ourselves successful because we know what the whiskey drinkers want. And if we want, we, it, all of our products, basically we said, you know what I want to taste next? And we go ahead and do it. And we find that our thoughts are basically in tandem with the rest of the whiskey drinking public. And people can identify with that. That's what I think anyway. And we identify with, with them too. So the Cologne buyers, we, we have a lot of empathy with them. And we really have. We, we care for our, our, our drinkers as well and our supporters. And uh, we've great fun with them and uh, meet them as much as possible, get to know as many of them as possible. And probably probably too much, to be honest, because it's the... It takes up a lot of our time and, and stuff too. But for us, that's that's the whole celebration of the industry and that's the whole celebration of the job is meeting these people because I just I just think that's that's the entirety of it. Um, so yeah, they're so important to us. So I think that connection with our supporters is exactly the answer there. So what's an example of a kind of whiskey or a decision that you would, that you all have made in terms of your production, that's a result of your, you know, connection with 
the whiskey drinking public, as you say. And then I know you just mentioned like you want to hire people that don't have experience in other distilleries. So like without spilling too many of your of the secrets of the trade, like what's something that, you know, what's a result of that sort of ethical approach to your your whiskey making? It goes right across the whole discipline. The main one being, um, we, we, we found ourselves in trouble before. Um, we've uncovered, uh, you know, Freedom of Information Acts, and we've seen who's been making the complaints against us to statutory authorities. And they came from Drinks Ireland, unfortunately, who were meant to be, you know, assisting the the the, the installation community. But um, we're not a member there. But um, and then. So after much investigative work, the, you know, the authorities found out that we weren't doing anything wrong. So it's just unfortunate. Um, such as empowering the consumer. That was the big thing at the start. When you buy your whiskies and you blend them and you just you don't just slap your label on them and say they're your own. You tell the consumer where this stuff comes from exactly, the breakdown of the dates in which it was made, and you empower the consumer. Now, we were accused of, quote, misleading the consumer. So, um, But whenever you... You know, advise your support base that you know this is what we're being accused of. Whenever you know it, it reinforces you. So that that was number one. But then the reason we set up our distillery was to create Potsdam Irish whiskey. Potsdam Irish whiskey of old was the whiskey of choice. It was the drink of choice. And um, this, this idea of a single malt is a it's a fabrication in my mind. Uh, even the Scots made mixed mash bill whiskies, and uh, now this idea of a single malt is, is a wonderful thing. It tastes beautiful, but it really shoehorns them into. Uh, you know, an area where they can't really, where their, their, creative, their creativity is limited. And uh, at the demise of Irish whiskey for social and political reasons at the turn of the last century, Scotch just filled in that void and uh, became number one around the world. But but it was Irish whiskey was the whiskey of choice. And not just Irish whiskey, it was pot still Irish whiskey. And pot still Irish whiskey then and pot still Irish whiskey now is made in two different ways. Much more adjuncts were used then. 30% oats, rye and wheat, whereas today you're really allowed to use five. Basically, it's so... Cask number one that we sold recently was 30% oats, rye and wheat. Massively successful. And uh, that, that was the eureka moment for us. And that's what we set up the distillery to do because we couldn't taste this whiskey anymore. And we know that it's pot still whiskey. Unfortunately, we couldn't call it pot still whiskey. We just had to call it whiskey. But uh, cask number two was made in accordance with the current legislation. So we could call it pot still whiskey. And there's, you know, they're two very different whiskeys. So for people that have no idea what you're talking about like what is pot still whiskey and what is single malt like what do those terms mean now because i feel like from my understanding it's a little unintuitive like what you imagine they would mean isn't really yeah. what they mean can you just quickly go over that but both are made in a pot still so that's a good point if you ever talked to, if i was in isla a few weeks ago and i was talking to some of the distillers there and they were referring to they were like pot still and but they they think they're single malt pot still as well pot still whiskey is made with unmalted barley, malted barley, and oats, and, and maybe a little bit of rye and wheat. Um, and to this day, you're only, with current legislation, which was, I think it was written not too long ago, um, it, it actually guarded the the, mash, the the recipe of one place. You're only allowed 5%. So single malt is made with 100% malted barley. No other grains, no unmalted grains. Unmalted grain gives you viscosity. It gives you spice, pot still spice, it's called ginger, those sorts of tastes in the background, which really added the complexity of a spirit. So it's just the homogenization of whiskey is homogenization of anything is just 
no fun at all you know we need lots of it's like life you need cultures you need food you need diversity whenever you homogenize a spirit category it's um it becomes boring and um unfortunately as much as i love single malt it's becoming very boring yeah it's interesting like to think of um sort of the parallels between say like the history of bread making for example where it used to be that one of the ways that people used to make bread was just to like sow different grains in the field, whatever that as a sort of a hedge, because some things would grow and some things wouldn't grow. Then they'd harvest it all and it would all go into the mix. And that's how like a lot of the country, country bread originated. And that's why at this point now you have like mixed grains going in there, mostly wheat, but you know, it could be some other things. So it strikes me as that there's some parallels there. Um, mm. And, and that's uh, me too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You just ferment whatever you got, basically, right? Yeah, and if you homogenized your grain, your crop, like the English mustard nearly went extinct a decade ago. People don't really know this. It got a disease, and they had to go way back into the seed banks, unearth these ancient grains, and start to diversify, you know, with, with, wild, with wild mustard seeds. Because this this strive towards perfection of one thing, it, it, it never ends well. Um <laughs> so our ancestors knew this they, they threw grains in and grew them amongst themselves so they would last longer and be healthier so you've got oats and rye growing together inside predominantly barley for instance and it's a massive yeah it's, it's hugely important and we're always learning from the past again absolutely i think this is, hits on the, another subject we wanted to talk about with you, which is terroir. That's something that is very important to wine and cheese, for example. And it, it's now something that you hear about in the distilling world more and more. Yeah. How do you approach the process of deciding where to source your grains and other components? Terroir is a very interesting topic. I think it's, it belongs, it's wonderful in, in the wine world. I think when you, when you try to bring terroir into the whiskey world, I think there's a huge danger. When you think of these grapes, these are these are trees that have grown, some of them for 100 years, and, and the, these vines are more, and they're producing wonderful uh, things that are truly of that place. And whenever uh, grains grown in different places do taste different, but whenever you start to focus on terroir, you remove, you remove the whole human aspect from whiskey making. And whiskey making is always about, all about people place whiskey making is all about you know the farmers and, and things like that as well and i think it's dangerous and then um that idea sense of place we, we need to find a different word for it i think we call it terroir but we really mean something else because it's an insult to terroir as well um and then some of the experiments as well that have been done have been far from convincing um and uh I've given it a lot of thought and, and open-mindedness, but I think we need a new word and uh, maybe something a bit more fitting. I don't know. But that sense of place, um, of lower place where whiskey is made, can benefit from so much more. Uh, the fermentations can benefit from the wild yeast, for instance, and uh, that's what we do anyway. And and uh, there's just so much more of a labour of love and, and, and a different process to making whiskey. And I think we're we're in danger of just washing all that away when we consider um, terroir in itself. That's just my own opinion on it. And uh, I think a lot of people in the whiskey world are going to start to wake up to that very soon. I think that you mentioned something a little bit about this when we were visiting the distillery a few weeks ago, the idea that Ireland is such a small place and 
with so many distilleries, I guess, I suppose probably in the past, potentially distilleries would get grain shipped in from very far away. But when you're talking about being local and trying to be as local as possible in a place that is as small as Ireland, how different is the barley, you know, grown in a field in adjacent to Killowen going to be different from something that comes from like, I don't know, Dundalk or, or, you know, somewhere that's, you know, really not that many miles away down the road. You, you would be surprised. It can differ. It can differ. And I suppose there are massive differences in, in the barleys and that. But there's just so many other factors that are impossible to control that would have impacts on the uh, on the distillations. The cuts are always different, things like that. Um, casks are different and, and that. And those have a massive influence on the, on the, on the flavour. You know? Um, but yeah, there, there's some places that... Ireland's incredibly rich in terms of its size, in terms of all the diff- different uh, soil types across it. Um, so we, we notice that when we get oats grown just down the lane from us, they're huge. The oats are massive. If we were to get oats somewhere else in the country, they're tiny. And uh, it's it's funny that, but maybe there are different strains as well. But you were talking about, you know, if Chawar isn't the right word, there still is a sense of place. Um, oh, definitely. definitely. And so what, if not, you know, say the provenance of the grains, what do you think creates that sense of place, particularly for Coloan? Um, I know you are alluding to sort of some of the, yeah. uh, the humidity and other at specific aspects about it. What's special about where That's you're true. doing your thing? That's true. And then different places react differently in different seasons. So we, we do wild fermentations, at least partially wild fermentations, and we allow them to kickstart wildly, like a two week fermentation. And then we would pitch our yeast afterwards. Uh, for the last three, three or four days or something. And and, and whenever you do this, um, there's different levels of yeast and bacteria in the atmosphere at different times of the year. And um, that in the autumn time, for instance, there would be much more um, because there'd be wild fruits and wild leaves that need to decompose and, and, and ferment wildly. So those are in there, in the blackberries and in the slows and the ditches, and they do find their way in. In the winter, that's probably next to nothing. And then in the in, Everything's much more active in the heat of the summer, so there's a they all there's, there's seasonal differentials to, to consider there as well. But there's definitely uh, different yeast strains alive and in the air high up on the mountain overlooking the Irish Sea than there would be, say, for instance, in the Midlands, where there'd be a nice big distillery or or somewhere down in the south of Ireland where things you know with the maritime environments one or two degrees warmer. These sorts of things, um, I just think there's there's so many variables. <laughs> but everywhere at that idea of a sense of place i think that's what makes ireland unique you guys know from touring around and, and taking tour groups about the, the, the it's hyper regional and uh, and that's that's in every aspect of it uh, and i think if we were to focus on soil type alone we would lose it and i think because there's so many other uh, variables i think it, it's impossible to to make you know a, a proper experiment on it at least there, i don't think there has been one done to date anyway This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week 
and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. We'd like to talk a little bit about poaching. I think most of our American listeners are probably not aware of what it is, and we would typically describe it to Americans as Irish moonshine, for lack of a better explanation. Would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about poaching's backstory and maybe talk a little bit about why it was important to you to include poaching as one of your main spirits? Thank you for that. I think poaching um, is, or poaching as well, two different ways of saying it. Uh, <laughs> as you know, it's whiskey's mummy. And um, saying that it's, it's like moonshine is a really good starting point, you know, for getting the idea across. And then you can get into more detail. I suppose the difference, so it's like moonshine, except it's not sugar shine. You know, you don't just use sugar. You can't do that. Um, some people are using a little bit of molasses because it was done in more recent history since, you know, uh, rum started to be moved into Ireland uh, since the 1800s or whatever. And then, um, but the main thing is that it's made from grains. And when we say grain, we don't mean uh, sweet corn because it, it never really grew here. It, it's been imported. Uh, we're talking about oats and barley predominantly. And it should be, it doesn't have to be, but most of the times it was smoky, peat smoked because it was made illicitly. Now, potching, you, if you like, was made illegal in 1661 and it only became legalized again in 1987. So it survived all that time as an underground drink. And uh, a lot of people who know how to make whiskey today probably learned it from making potching. And uh, it's got... You, whenever you make a mistake, say in the stills, you can always put it in a cask for a number of years and it could hide those flavours. Um, but when you're making a spirit that's meant to be drank immediately or else after a few weeks in a cask, there's very room, very little room for error. So, yeah, it's a quality drink. Although it's illicit and first underground, it's a wonderful drink. It's part of our medicine here. It's part of our lore. It's, it's part of who we are. It was part of our economy. It was, it was the drink of choice from the Irish chieftains as well. One, one of them in particular was called Bulkan, which means a blow to the head. Uh, it was a high-strength one that was full of oats and barley, 50-50. And it is a phenomenal drink. I think you guys tried it up at the distillery. Um, but the, it's such it's got such a rich heritage. And then if you were to try to explain to people what it tastes like, it tastes like a really good quality mezcal when it's made right, of course. there's Like, like everything, there's some dodgy mezcals, there's some dodgy potchings. But I think the flavours that are in it are so similar to mezcal. It's, you know, that that earthiness, the vegetal notes, the um, the fruitiness, uh, and uh, yeah, it's it works perfectly It's in cocktails and cocktail making or drinking straight, you know. Maybe you could talk a little bit about like why it was made illegal first. If there's, a, I don't think everyone knows exactly what was going on at the time. And I think that's an interesting and important part of the story. I think at one stage, um, 
America was colonized as well, and uh, there was a bit of a war over taxes and things like that. <laughs> Somebody threw that, a tea into the sea and, and, and stuff, but uh, we didn't have all that tea to throw into the sea, or we definitely didn't have the manpower, unfortunately. But this was before that. This was in 1661, and uh, whenever the king at the time introduced the excise, he basically said that all Ishkavaha and Akavite had, a, a, had he imposed, it was a Dutch concept, Dutch man done it, uh, three pence per gallon, uh, quote. And he said, as for Balkan, which was, it was enjoyed by the chieftains at the time, it was a lovely pochi, uh, there was seven pence per gallon. So he basically said, slamming down on this stuff, uh, unfortunately. And uh, so it basically, up until then, it was illegal then to uh, to operate a still, uh, unless you were given the duty, uh, paying the duty. So it survived on, it survived on, and Ireland has had a very, very troubled past um, in terms of colonialism. And right through the 1800s, even whenever it was completely colonised, there was a period of time known as the Poching Wars. Uh, that, that, that was a, a phrase coined by the brilliant Fanon O'Connor. Uh, and uh, the Poching Wars, particularly, there was somewhere in, in Waterford. You know where Waterford Distillery is today? And uh, they tried to seize the still there, and, and the redcoats were basically stoned to death um, when they were coming in. They were outnumbered by the locals because this is how important this stuff is. It wasn't just a revolt. It's, it's the straw that broke the camel's back. These people need this for income. If you don't have coins to trade, what do you trade with? This was economy. Inishon, Inishon and Donegal, I'm sure you guys were up there. Inishon uh, made the best potching in Ireland. Inishon's style was renowned across Ireland and Scotland, exported into Scotland and the islands as well, and across Ulster, which was very, it, it was uh, planted heavily at the time. So it was much more civilised, if you like, in today's uh, terms. And uh, Bush Mills created a whiskey in the 1800s called Inishon style whiskey. There was no distillery in Inishon at the time. So no legal one anyway. So it was in, in an attempt to wean the population off illicit booze and and but the way they done it it was a double distilled um smoky smoky potching beautiful stuff you know um so basically it was potching style whiskey you know and when the when it was made legal again um what were what's the criteria for being called potching something that was made you know in a number a wide variety of ways uh for, throughout all its history, and then now is kind of coming under regulation. So what does something need to be in order to be considered to be poaching today? Yeah, uh, unfortunately, it's quite broad. Um, the, the, whenever the last one was put together, it seemed to be put together in a hurry. And right now, there's a lot of uh, conversation going on in the Irish Whiskey Guild, for which we were co-founders, and also in the Irish Whiskey Association. And uh, everybody are going to... Uh, we, we try, we're trying to bring together a lot of thought about what it actually should be because unfortunately at the minute you can make it with a lot of molasses and you can make it through a column still and I can tell you nobody had column stills back in the days of potching making and they still don't to this day so green neutral spirit shouldn't be allowed to get in there in my mind but we have to keep everybody happy it needs to be protected now before it explodes as big as Miss Cal um, otherwise it'll be made sloppy and it'll not do a good job we need it to taste good as well so, so you're allowed to uh, you know, add fruits as well and potatoes. And that that's the other myth. It was never made with potatoes. Um, <laughs> if anybody's burnt a, a bowl of spuds, it, it doesn't taste good. But <laughs> it's very hard to extract sugar from potatoes with the remedial technologies that were at hand. So 
um, maybe a tiny bit of peel or something might have been added as an adjunct if you want to stretch that far. But no, uh, the potato was so important for food that they wouldn't have done that. Um, but yeah, oats and barley is what potsy was made from. And other things were experimented with. So hopefully an adjunct of 5% will be the, the, the new legislation. Uh, I'd be happy to see that 5% fruits, 5% molasses. That'd be great fun. So the f- the first time that I ever tried pochine was at a bar in Belfast, and it was a bartender who served us some from his secret stash behind the counter. So I imagine it was something that was not made in a distillery. I don't know where it actually came from, but I also remember, you know, being a little bit nervous to to drink it because I think that my impression of it at the time was that it was very much like moonshine. And I don't know what proof it was, but very, very high up there. And perhaps this is a, this is an obvious question, but since, you know, this would have been after 1997. So, um, although I guess you still can't make pachin in your, in your home. <laughs> but anyway, I know that there's this pachin conference coming up in Dublin that you're speaking at and that you've talked about pachin being a world-class spirit and wanting to, you know, share it with the world in, in a more intentional way. And I'm wondering if something about the fact that it became legal and then there were more controls put into place has something to do with the pachin becoming more palatable, whereas it it wouldn't have been, it used to maybe be something that you would just drink straight, but now you can go into places um, and bars in Ireland and you can drink it as part of a cocktail. I think I think the last generation has seen a decline in quality of, of pachin. At one stage, you know, there would have been choice and you could have picked what you wanted. But then when it became more and more scarce, um, you, you didn't just, whenever you read reading old books, you, you hear of, you know, potchings that were made in this person's house, you wouldn't have touched the potchings that were made by this lady. You know, it was brilliant. And that's how potching works. You know, if you ever like read the year of the French or whatever, for instance, that they would refer to in Mayo, they would be referring to potching that you shouldn't go near and potching that you should should go for. Um, but whenever you... Um, Whenever you're looking for a, a good potching now, it might be more difficult. You're right. You're stuck for choice and you take what's going and it'd probably be dodgy. So there's this crucial stage now, a handover stage, because it's it's now becoming more it's more it's more cheap now just to walk you know, less expensive now to buy your own spirit than produce your own. Whereas at, at one stage, you know, when money was tough, you had to make your own as well. So there's this handover period right now where potting illicit potting will die out and um, potting makers somebody needs to take it on so craft producers need to take it on and we're at that crucial point now where you can take it on and as you say the quality now as a result as well is is becoming much better there's still a few dodgy ones out there I, I, I get sued if I name names but there's some very bad ones that have been hanging around from the 90s in airports and stuff and they're they're just absolutely terrible but then if you look at the more the places with much more integrity that are making Pachi now really getting behind the brand and really caring about their own brand and, and what they're making. That's the Pachi that you want to go for. Like the Sun Tavern over in London uh, started opened itself up as a Pachi bar many years ago. It's a fantastic bar to go to. Uh, then there's 1661, which was uh, in Dublin, which is a brilliant Pachi bar as well. And then bootleggers in, in um in Belfast, you know they they enjoy their potching as well. So it's there's there's a lot of good potching around now. And unfortunately, there's probably is still that, that bar that you were at probably still has that bottle underneath. 
don't know who owns it, but it's still part of the tradition. It's part of the landscape and it's part of the history. But I think we're at a turning point now where something needs to be done unurgently. And uh, yeah, we just we just need to move forward together and make sure that there's no schism in the industry about what it should be. So, you know, like big picture in Ireland, in the distilling world, it really wasn't that long ago where there were, I believe, like three distilleries. And now fast forward and there's, you know, 30, 40 distilleries happening. So first question is like, what happened? How did that number explode? How did that number stay so small for so many years and then explode to the diversity that there is today? And, you know, second follow-up question would be how much of that is on the craft level and how much of that are sort of brands operated by bigger distilleries that maybe, you know, don't have the unique characteristics that of something like what you're, what you guys are up to. How did that, how did that come about? And also how would you, how would you characterize those, the, the wide range of a number of distilleries that have opened up recently without getting sued? Yeah. (laughs) There's different types. There are different types. There's a few people with their hearts in the right place. And uh, we find ourselves working with them in the Irish Whiskey Guild quite a lot. There's other distilleries that were set up without doubt for the intention of flipping to larger companies. Uh, everybody knew who they were, seeing them being built, like, who are these guys? They know what they're doing. They're just making this generic whiskey style. And next thing you know, you're like, Sazerac's going to come in and buy them. And next thing you know, they do. And there's another going, oh, there's another distillery that's set up to be flipped as well. You know, you can see them. Then there's a handful of distilleries that are people who, um, like ourselves, <laughs> who are sitting going, you haven't a pot to piss in for the first three years there. And, and you, you're just busting yourself and you're stressed out trying to, to make the thing work. It's all about the flavor and you're playing it right. You're playing your cards right because you want people to respect you and your brand. You are the brand as well, I suppose. So that was, that was a big deal for us as well. And there is a few people like us now setting up as well, which is wonderful. Um, but yeah, then, then there's this thing in the middle where there's people, you know, we're doing it as a vanity project. And I don't know, whenever industries always go in peaks and troughs, so there will be a time, I don't know when, whenever, you know, we're going to uh, hit a bit of a wall and there's going to be a lot of casualties and pray to God that there are none, but there's some that I wouldn't have a lot of confidence in as a result. Uh, it's just it's just the way, you know, so there, there's, 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 there's different typologies, you know. One's being built up for the flip and then there's ones that are being built with love and, and thankfully there's enough being built with love to, you know, to continue on. How do you balance the appeal of being Ireland's smallest distillery with the desire to make enough whiskey to meet the demand? Do you already feel pressure to expand or grow your capacity? And if so, um, would you do that? And what would that look like? You're right. So you guys were up, we were 10 meter by 10 meter. So it was a small place. Uh, So we did expand basically because we got another little shed up the lane just for storing casks in. So that was expansion number one, uh, and then I suppose if we were ever to to expand, people say businesses need to grow to survive. I think I think we'll build another small distillery somewhere else, with uh, similar ethos but definitely different different approach to making whiskey. And the two of them can communicate, and um, that that might be that 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 would be my approach to growth. So without growing in scale, making another small sister distillery maybe, 
and uh, the two of them can communicate well together. I, I would love to do that. That would be that would be an ambition going forward. Um, and then, yeah, I suppose that's the answer. That sounds really cool. So let's talk about Cask One a little bit. It was just released, so we'd love to hear about it from you. For you know, first of all, what 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 is it like, and why is this one so special and different from your other bottles in the past? And um, why'd you decide why'd you decide to do a lottery, and and what was that process like? Yeah, um, selling Cask One was was the hardest task we've had yet in the distillery because so many people deserve a bottle and didn't get a bottle. Uh, at least in their minds, they deserve a bottle. Everyone deserves a bottle. And I'd love to see everybody get a bottle. But even if you even look at there's one group online itself known as the Clone Cult, and uh, they're a self-styled group. There's just under a 1,000 people in it, and they're very tightly controlled. You know, They're known to kick people out and only let people in. They police who's in there, and they police conversations. And they have almost a bit of a code of ethics, and they don't enjoy flipping bottles for profit and stuff. It's up to them, you know. But this is this is tends to be the ethos. And um, the thing with the cult then is that um, even the cult alone, that you know, and not everybody's on social media, and not everybody buys clone religiously on social media either. Um, there's not enough to go around there. So you, you can actually see on there people who were hurt and didn't get a bottle. And some people expressed their, those thoughts to us, which was very difficult as well. Then there's family and friends, and there's people who don't use social media if they're older, maybe. And, and um, I have a, I've come from, I'm one of eight children. So there's a lot of siblings and, and people looking for bottles there as well. There's cousins, there's uh, people involved in the business, there's the staff, there's, there's just wasn't enough to go around. Um, and how big was the release? How many bottles was it? 230 i think it was 30 something you know it was it was a small cask uh cask number one so what we did was to ease the burden released cask number two at the same time and we set it out completely randomly again uh to all of the retail partners and distributors but sure two of them who got big allocations ended up doing ballots themselves as well it was um yeah, it was a tough one. Um, so you, you basically succeeded in getting a lot of people upset with you, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, and there was some no... Some people got really excited. excited yeah. Slash yeah some people were... A lot of emotions. A lot of emotions. <laughs> it's like winning the lottery. I mean, lottery. Yeah. I think this is that pot still I'm talking about. This is a proper pot still that's made with, you know, broad... But we can't... Sorry, this isn't pot still. I have to correct myself here. This is not pot still. This is not single pot still. It should be single pot still. In fact... It, it's it single pot still was made longer in this way than it hasn't. So, if and just so everyone that the reason you can't call it pot still is because it has more than five percent uh, oats, right. oats. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So it's it's got about five percent rye, five percent wheat, basically, and and then twenty something percent oats. It's just I can't get over how confusing that is because. It because you it, it, you know the term is is the device that you use to make it, but but it, it's about the ingredients that you put in it. I mean, that's right. That's right. Um, it's very it confusing. Always, <laughs> it, back in back in times of old when it was the whiskey choice, it was actually called pure pot still. So it was called pure pot still. And then I don't know if you know this, but America was like the biggest market, obviously, for Irish whiskey. And nothing in America can be nothing in America is allowed to be called pure. Uh, and be sold 
Um, I don't know what it, what the reason is. It's probably something to do with the gold standard or religious connotations. I don't know, but that's that's the truth. So they had to change the name, and uh, so you see old bottles being called pure postal, and they looked at the Scottish single malt, and then they said, so it's single malt. So they call it, we'll call it single pot still. So that's part of the evolution of the term from. So most of us call it pot still then, you know, it is pot still. Um, and this is, so we, we can't call this single pot still. Not yet, not until the legislation is corrected. But cast number two is pot still. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so cask one, um, tell us tell us a little bit about it and the process for actually creating it. What's in the bottle? Yeah, cask one is... Uh, Oh, lovely stuff. And it was after that beautiful mixed mash bill and put through, you know, our two stills, double distillation. Uh, can I start off by dismissing the three myths of Irish whiskey? Three myths of Irish whiskey is, number one, Irish whiskey is triple distilled. Pants, it, it was double distilled and sometimes triple distilled. Number two, that Irish whiskey is non-smoked. Uh, number Irish whiskey was smoked, peated, definitely. Uh, as I said earlier, Inish own style, Bush Mills at one stage. Um, how on earth did they manage to malt um, grains historically without smoking them? I do not know, but that doesn't matter. And then number three is that Irish whiskey is smooth. Smooth is uh, smooth is for alcohol pops. Smooth is for uh, smooth is a bloody insult. Well balanced and complex, yes, um, but not smooth. You don't you don't drink whiskey to drink something smooth. You know you have a a piece of chocolate and a cup of tea. I I don't know. But um, you want complexity, you know, you want to sit there and get balance on your palate. But people say smooth, sometimes that's what they mean. They mean balance, I think. And uh, so so you can forgive people for saying it. But those are the three myths of Irish whiskey. But when in fact Irish whiskey was double distilled, it was smoky and it was eating and drinking and it, you could chew it, you know, and, and, and salivate and, and spicy, postal spicy goodness. And that's what Irish whiskey is about. So whenever you're drinking cask number one, that's what you're getting. And it's put into a PX sherry cask as well so it was a first fill px um so you get a lot of figs coming in there too you get lovely dry notes you're getting that like pulled pork maple maple syrup over you know big thick canadian or minnesota bacon you know that type of thing uh you, so there's real savory notes in there but at the same time you're getting those lovely dried fruits and figs and the maple syrups there as well of course and uh celery a little bit of celery as well for some reason coming through and uh we use flame to feed our stills as well. So that Maillard reaction burns on the base of the still. Uh, so we reintroduced that into Ireland again. And, and that burning on the base of the stills with proteins and sugars, basically caramelize and burn, adds another dimension of flavor. And worm tub condensers, those fell out of fashion in Ireland as well in the 50s, because rightfully so, they're hugely inefficient. Uh, shell and tube condensers are the weapon of choice nowadays. And we were over in Strathairn Distillery that time. They were using shell and tubes and it was brilliant. Because the stills managed to run inside six hours, but we use the same size stills in Cologne with worm tubs, and we have to run them for for twelve hours. So that's the difference, you know. You're running them, which means much more interaction with the copper, much more burning at the base of the still, much less residual sulfates and sulfur. Sulfur basically tastes and smells like old eggs, so uh, or worse. So when you get that completely out of your palate, all you've got to work with then is goodness, you know. And we do our cuts by nose as well. And that lends itself into this really quality uh, spirit. We hit the ground running, luckily enough, with cask number one. Um, and we're glad we just didn't, you know, make another homogenous Irish whiskey. We made 
this is this I think we think this is a new leaf for Irish whiskey. Mm. Well, congratulations. Thank <laughs> um, you. Cheers. Yeah. What is uh what's next on the horizon in terms of releases or what is your next big project that you're focused on? Yeah, it's gonna be uh, next year. We're going to be releasing a whiskey, but there's also a charity cask on it. So we're selling a cask at a lower price to a group uh, known as Friends of Irish Whiskey. And they're going to auction it and sell it for the Capuchin uh, charity in Dublin, the Homeless Centre. They've been feeding homeless for years, getting them off the streets. And they're a wonderful uh, group of monks. And they recently took in the state basically failed uh, recently to provide accommodation for for the latest wave of Ukrainians. So the Capuchin charity came in and picked them off the floor of the airport and sorted them out. So it's a wonderful charity and we're very happy to work with them. So this cask that's going out there is called the Paddle Breaker. It was a rye cask. So we tried to make 100% rye. It ended up being 90% rye in the long run because we had that a little bit of adjunct. Rye is impossible to work with on its own. It's just so sticky and gloopy. And uh, we broke many boat paddles because we mixed by hand. We don't use agitators. We we just this stuff was like concrete, set in concrete, and it was so it was an expensive couple of days. And when the boat paddles broke, we ended up using bits bits, bits of timber to try, to try and uh, stir them. But uh, we got there in the end. So it's an extremely low yielding, very very special um, product uh, in a Pinot Noir cask, and then for a short period of time, and then the rest of its life in um, <coughs> in uh, in rye casks. American rye casks to bring that more mellow approach to, to the spirit that, that you get out of the uh, you know, the high vanilla content in uh, American oak. Our oak over here is quite spicy, quite a, quite aggressive. That sounds amazing. Um, for people that want to stay stay connected to Cologan and hear more about what you are up to, what, what's the best way? Obviously, visit your website, but tell tell yeah. us. Yeah. Do do subscribe actually on the website. We don't we don't torture people with junk mail. We only if there's a nice release coming out, then we let people know. So we the reason why we don't torture people with junk mail is because I just couldn't be bothered putting together emails. So I put together right before release and I send it out. So it's always if you get an email, it's important. And then the other things that we do, uh, yeah, um, follow us on all social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. And there, it is possible to buy Kiloan in the United States currently. Isn't that yeah. true? Yeah. yeah we're distributed. And there's some bars that you that bars that bars have it as well? Yeah, there are indeed. Yeah, just um, most of the cities, most of the, uh, the big cities, thankfully, have us uh, in, in a few places. Um, we're quite well concentrated in, 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 like in New York, for instance. We do well or in, in uh, Minnesota or in California as well. There's a number of places there too. Um, fold some wines online as well. I understand they ship quite quite well across the country, and we've got three special casks we're going to be bottling between now and Christmas as well, and they're going to be shipped out and sent to um, sent over as well. So America are going to get three casks of Cologne, probably in time for St Patrick's Day. You never know. All right. Well, hopefully there's no uh, street fights fighting over these casks in uh, Cologne, but I'm sure people will be really excited to see them here. Brilliant. Yeah. Oh, it'll be interesting to see it. And the people over here will be freaking out because they're exclusives, you know. In fact, my favorite cask's gone over there at the moment. It's a cognac cask, white cognac. It's just wonderful, you know. 
pot still in my cognac. It's perfect. Well, we'll be sure to look out for those and share all the news. And we wanted to just say thank you so much for spending the time with us today and telling us about what you do. Not at all. Thanks so much for, for tuning in. I really appreciate it, guys. And thanks for calling the distillery as well. It's great to see you. And I'm sure we'll meet again. Dyed Green is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. Dyed Green is a project of Bog and Thunder, whose mission is to highlight the best of Irish food and culture through food tours, events, and media. Find out more at bogandthunder.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any story suggestions, questions, or things you'd like to share in response to our broadcast, you can email us directly at diedgreen at heritageradionetwork.org.